Here's the president and primary owner of TrueTech Tools, licensed engineer, and the nicest BS artist you will ever meet, Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast. Our goal at Building HVAC Science is to create better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians by helping the two professions to better understand each other with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. We're heading up north for today's episode, and by north, I mean Alaska. I met Griffin at the HabitatX conference several years ago and found him to be thoughtful, insightful, and a quiet but powerful champion of the principles he believes in. In today's episode, we discuss electrification in Alaska, the deep retrofit work Griffin is doing in his own home, and several other topics. Griffin did a post in the HabitatX journal, and I provide that link in the show notes. And also something just to capture Griffin's, again, quiet spirit here from his LinkedIn bio, very simple sentence, affordable housing executive and energy transition observer with extensive experience on the Arctic slope of Alaska. I encourage you to look at the links in the show notes and listen in as Griffin and I talk about electrification in Alaska and other chill topics. Welcome back to Building HVAC Science. Sometimes I don't know which podcast I'm on and I almost say the wrong thing. (laughs) (laughs) So that chuckle came from my guest today. It's Griffin Hagel Forster. How are you doing today, Griffin? I'm doing very well, Bill. Happy Halloween. Thank you. Yes, the recording on Halloween. Can I call you Griff? You go by Griff, right? Yeah. Is that okay? Yep. So Griffin and his wife have a son. What's your son going to be dressed for this Halloween? He's going to be a fire truck. A fire truck. With lots of insulation and padding in the costume because it's going to be about 25 degrees tonight. So he'll be nice and toasty. All right. So that might start to place the listeners as to where you live geographically. If it's 25 degrees on Halloween and there isn't a cold front passing through, where are you talking from right now, Griffin? So we're latitude 61 here in Anchorage, Alaska, Bill. And you've not always been in Anchorage. You've been even further north than that before? That's correct. For six years, my wife and I lived in Utkiavik, the town formerly known as Barrow, which is the northernmost point in the United States, northernmost city. And I continue to split my time there. I work for the regional housing authority, Togyogamilo, Nunimilo Housing Authority. I've been there for the last four and a half years. So I, I do most of that work remote, and then I'm on site as needed. What's your background that brought you to Alaska? I like to say that I came into the housing industry through a crawl space. In 2006, I moved back to my hometown of Medford, Oregon, and I got a job. And this is just to pay the bills. I got on a weatherization crew. And when you're the new guy on the weatherization crew, they send you into the tightest crawl spaces. I was pretty young then, so I had an easier time fitting back in there, dragging the insulation home. And we did probably about 80% mobile home upgrades. So we'd seal up the duct work. We'd blow insulation into the bellies and the roof and all that, tune up furnaces. And man, I just, the difference you would see it make in people's lives opened my eyes to this reality that there are so many things to make better in our buildings and that healthy, energy efficient buildings should really be the minimum we demand from our indoor spaces. And I've bridge that to the work I do now in affordable housing and community development and the advocacy and the public policy surrounding that is making connections and closing gaps. So I talk about that in the policy sense, and I also think about it literally in the building and HVAC distribution sense. Interesting. So what does it entail with your role presently? 
in Alaska? I'm the executive director for one of the 14 regional housing authorities, which is kind of a unique system. Every region has a housing authority. We've got six uh, Nupiaq tribal governments that are under the umbrella of the housing authority there. And we provide development management of existing stock. I will say that due to the lack of change in funding over the last 25 years since the tribal housing assistance assistance system was reformed, inflation has just brutalized places like Alaska. It has an Indian country and tribal areas across the country, but especially up here when we have such high costs to build anything new. So you'll go to a village and you might see in the 1990s, the 20 homes the housing authority built with HUD funding. And in the 2000s, you might see another 10 house development. In the 2010s, you'll see a five house development. And you can really see the effect of inflation through the years, just resulting in lower output. So it's not as much development. It's more maintenance, rehab, renovation these days until the funding situation changes. I Got to know you really well through the Habitat X conferences, face-to-face meetings there, and you did a couple presentations and talked about a few things. And some things that stick in my mind when I think about you are the effect of melting permafrost on housing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So actually, one of the tribes in our region, the native village of Point Lay, in March of this year, they became the first Alaska tribe to declare a climate emergency by formal resolution. And the whole Arctic Slope region that we serve is impacted by climate change at a rate in terms of temperature increase that's much faster than the lower 48, more temperate areas of the world. But Point Lay in particular has this combination of having really ice-rich permafrost. That means the ground there will be maybe 60 to 100% water by volume, depending on where you are. And so there's a phenomenon called subsidence that happens. I have to remind myself that not everybody has heard. I've talked to people who don't know what permafrost is or subsidence is, but we deal with it a lot. So subsidence happens literally when the ground gets warm enough for it to drop. And so it it creates these sinkhole effects, or if you think of a souffle just collapsing. And I've stood under Holmesville in the village of Point Lay, where when I was in high school, basically the ground would have been at my head and now it's at my feet. So you're talking about six, seven, eight feet of subsidence. And since our homes are built on pilings, and that's done to elevate them above the ground so the heat from within the home doesn't thaw the permafrost, but you'll see the benchmarks on the pilings from where they originally met their ground, and they might be painted above that or something like that, and you'll see the rate of subsidence marked on the pilings. And so our housing authorities responded to this in a bunch of stopgap ways. We've put bracing on the pilings because as they become more exposed, the structural of the foundation is a little more at risk. We've used aircraft cabling and things like that to try to square them up and brace them and tighten them. But it's a really worrying situation for the people there. There's some villages in Alaska threatened by either permafrost subsidence, thaw, riverine erosion or coastal erosion, whatever it may be, flooding that have had to retreat. The village in Newtok comes to mind as as one in the last two years that has begun the process of relocation to a site, I believe, nine miles away further inland and up on higher ground. So communities like Point Lay, certainly in the next few years, next 10, 15 years, are going to be having that conversation more frequently due to these changes having really dramatic impacts on their landscape and not only their landscape, but the applicability of their traditional knowledge that goes back millennia, their food security, energy security, certainly housing security. Your knowledge base is so rich. Is that a requirement of your job or is that just you? (laughs) 
I've been drinking from a fire hose for four and a half years, and I'm lucky to live along and learn from some of the toughest people on the planet. Very resourceful folks. I love spending time in our villages. It's a different way of life than many people in the lower 48 or even urban Alaska would recognize. But there are parts of it that you very much do recognize as being part of this country. You see the football flags flying on the four-wheelers or outside the house, and people go to the post office and the grocery store and school just like they do anywhere else. So it's very alike and unlike the rest of the nation at one time, and I think that's a part that I really enjoy learning about. The other striking comment or topic you discussed was the fact that at least, at least up in Ukiakvik, the requirement to bring in all materials by plane, and we're not talking about big planes. What restriction? And give me some idea of the volume or size of components you can get. First, I want to commend you on your pronunciation. That was really well done. I don't know if you've practiced it all, but it just it rolled. So in Utkiavik, we're constrained by logistics, procurement and logistics. I'd say procurement, logistics, and workforce issues are our, our two main challenges right now. But there's 737 service into Utkiavik daily. So things will come into the cargo hold on the plane or cargo planes will bring it in. The other alternatives are the barge season, which is August. So once a year, there's a barge delivery that lands, and we might get another trip out of that on the backhaul route of the barge. So it comes up from southern southwest Alaska, goes through the Bering Strait, comes up to the North Slope, the Chukchi and the Beaufort Seas, the Arctic Ocean, and then it stops in Dead Horse or Prudhoe Bay, which is 150 miles east of Utkiavik, the oil industry complex there, and then it'll turn around and come back. So in theory, you could drive something up the road there, put it on the barge, and have it come back the other way. So barge once a year in August, not ideal timeline for construction because we really like to get going with construction in April or May. So if we want to take advantage of the summer season, we're either flying stuff in or we're bringing it overland. And we've done that in the last couple of years using a machine called a piston bully. So if you imagine a snowcat like that they use for Groman ski resorts, it's a big version of that. And that'll tow a couple of 50-foot trailers with construction materials. And so it's very dynamic to price the different modalities. I've been really interested in what's the dollar per pound per mile or hour day, whatever it is. And we're finding out that with fuel charges and the quotes expiring really quickly, there's no way to project really in a year or two years time for our construction projects, what logistics and freight are going to be. So it varies and we select the option that makes the most sense for any given project. And sometimes we combine them. We've got a project coming up in the village of Point Lay next summer, and we're going to be flying in the first house package or bringing it in on the piston bully, the overland route, which costs a little more. And then bringing the second two packages, we're building three buildings there on the barge. And the idea is we get started on one of those packages in April or May next year, have it dried in midsummer. And then the other two packages arrive once we've used our construction crews timeline, time efficiently, and they can get started next season on the other two. You mentioned the other challenge there just a moment ago was workforce. Can you describe what that looks like? We hear about the great resignation and quitting and whatever else TikTok is telling us about everywhere these days. So it's a nationwide challenge. As you know, in your work, the skilled trades are... Evaporating. Yeah. it's We don't see the people going into these fields that they should be. And these are the jobs that keep society running. I mean, just electricians alone... We've had a job posting open, I think, for the last year and a half for an electrician for our company. We've got one on staff right now, getting toward the end of the time he wants to be in the workforce, and it's a struggle. And especially up in our environment where the challenges are the distance from 
where people might live. The fact that there are few folks, residents who may have the qualifications or are interested in developing them. So we've just become interested as a practical matter in the development of more interest in the skilled trades. So we've spoken to the tribal college about that and cross-promoting like a skilled trade signing day sort of thing. But it's not just that, it's everything. It's office jobs, simple maintenance and repair jobs. We're evaluating everything, whether it's our compensation, our housing allowance package, what's the right combination of flexible factors to draw people in, but certainly is a challenge up there. Now, you mentioned that you have a job opening for an electrician, but that will lead us to the topic we had agreed upon. Topic at hand was electrification in Alaska. What is the path? Yeah. What are your thoughts there? I'm proud to say we've got some practical experience on Inukjavik with this, and it's not a full electrification, but we are kind of 60% of the way through what I call our pandemic project. And I call it a pandemic project because if we didn't have it going on, there's no telling if we would have been able to keep our folks employed and busy with our travel to our seven outlying village villages being shut down effectively for over a year. There is really no way unless it was just an absolute emergency to get out and do any work in the villages. So we had folks in the hub in Utkavik staying busy on this 29-unit multifamily renovation. And what we did there is we compartmentalized the units. We did a whole forensic audit with the Cold Climate Housing Research Center and their engineers coming up to do that in March of 2020. Did a, a multi-fan blower door test. The building benchmarked everything and then started making these upgrades. And one thing we decided early on is to get rid of fossil fuels inside the units themselves. And the only appliance that was using them was the gas stoves. And they're pretty, this is a low-income, low-rent building, and it's just the cheapest gas stoves you can imagine. We found during the audit, several of them were emitting higher than the allowable carbon monoxide concentrations. And we'd had issues too, like once somebody left open flame going and fell asleep with like a hot dog in a pan, the fire department came out. And I actually remember in 2020, a house was destroyed by a a natural gas explosion. Fortunately, the occupant survived, but it was two miles across town from me and it felt like a truck just rammed into our building. So we've got experience with the hazards that go along with combusting stuff indoors. And we said, okay, let's upgrade the electrical service on the building and let's swap out the stoves for induction ranges as part of the kitchen renovation. And so far, we've had pretty good experience with that. There's been some mixed results with folks who weren't familiar with the technology. And one thing we've heard is that people really do prefer knobs rather than touchscreen with induction controls. And I'm in that camp myself. I made sure that when we bought the stove for our personal renovation, we had a a model with knobs on it. So that electrified the units themselves. We still have gas-fed fire boilers that provide the baseboard heat throughout the building. We're looking into a gas cogeneration system so we can lower people's utility bills, keep the building on in the event of power outages, which are pretty frequently occurring during the winter there, and make has a nice benefit of lowering the carbon intensity of the building and all these other things. So that was our my professional experience with electrification, if you want to call it that. Where does the power come from? So in Utkiavik, it's natural gas, and there's abundant gas fields up in the north slope of Alaska, enough that the state has been for years in the process of trying to build a pipeline to an export terminal in South Alaska. But that's different than the rest of the state, which usually burns diesel for power and heat. So the north slope and south central Alaska, the Anchorage area, both have access to natural gas. And that's one of the things I would mention as part of our electrification calculus as personally with our residents in Anchorage is 
the supplier of natural gas to the region has basically said to the utilities, once the current gas supply contracts run out in two to 11 years, depending on what utility it is, they can't guarantee further supply. So there's this growing awareness of a supply constraint. Wait, it's not that the price would just go up? There would be reduced supply? There'd be reduced supply and the price would probably go up. So talking to some folks who know a little bit more about this than me, the consensus seems to be there could be a case where Alaska, which has had its own resources, would begin importing LNG to make up the difference. And the cost to bring new supply online in Cook Inlet, where the wells are in our area, is almost certainly going to drive the cost up by at least 50%. So there's some math to figure there. But either way, you've got the cost of natural gas going up. Most of our electrical generation in, in this area is in that one basket of natural gas. And so you would see a, an electric cost rise as well. To help the listeners orient, can you share the cost per therm and cost per kilowatt hour generally? Generally, yeah, I think it's about $8 per million cubic feet right now supply-wise to the utilities. And I can't remember the cost for per therm or how that breaks down in my head. It's about 21 cents per kilowatt hour residential use in Anchorage. Going back a little bit to procurement, and you were talking about using the piston bully to bring in components to build new housing. Is any deference being given to offsite construction methods, or is it traditional stick built, or is there something special about what you do there? So I had a really interesting conversation with the modular division of a Alaska company here that's built a lot of prefabbed units, They've including some on the North Slope. And I went into their store actually to get a quote on roofing for my project. And I said, hey, can I get a tour of your modular division? And they said, we've shut it down in 2020. And it was a demand issue. We don't see the volume of demand that we need to really keep 100 people working at this place. They said it's not totally off the table that they would open it again. But I thought that was interesting that there just wasn't demanded even locally. And there's no local builders that are interested in prefab and they hadn't seen enough. There's another facility in the state about an hour north of me that I plan to visit and take a look at that. But on that note, actually, that the Cold Climate Housing Research Center, whose board I serve on, they're based in Fairbanks in interior Alaska, They've partnered with the National Renewable Energy Laboratories, so they've got a site there, and they've come up with this semi-modular concept where they basically take a Connex, a 20-foot shipping container, and they build the more complicated parts of the home in there, so the wet walls for the kitchen and the bathroom and the mechanical room, and that's all there. And then they ship that out to a village, and they did it to the village of Enolaclete. They sent this shipping container out there to build the frame house around. I thought that was an interesting approach. It might be something that we look at as a housing authority in the future is taking care of the complicated mechanical stuff in a prefab way and allowing people to customize the home on the site. And that's an approach that I respect because you have to have some awareness for the fact there's generally pretty good carpenters available in every village, be a plumber or mechanical or electrician, but you've got people who can frame a home and insulate it and all that. And so I like that idea and we might have to give it a shot. So more tailor-made to the available workforce? Exactly, yeah. So you had mentioned going out shopping for a roof or roof components. What's that all about? I was just going to get a quote on our metal roof for our project. We've been renovating a 1950s Cape Cod and Anchorage here that we bought in 2020. And it's just been such an education at every step of the way. Very, very humbling in terms of what we're able to take on. I'm acting as a general contractor, not necessarily by preference, but 
by circumstance from getting the appraisal to finding appliances or the right folks to come in and getting the scope and sequencing right, it has really been a challenge. And we had some structural repairs and upgrades to make as part of this job too. So in order to keep things on track and that get done what we could this year, that's the role I had to act in. Were the major phases of the renovation? So we began working with the architect and engineer and summer 2020 after we bought the house and everything about it, it was a gift in some ways because it was like a time capsule. Nothing had been touched. The siding had to go. The roofing eventually had to go. The foundation, we called it a daylight basement because there were step cracks in the grout and you could see daylight coming through. So (laughs) along with water and everything else, we had to do basically a foundation upgrade. So the first phase of this was we had the chimney on the side of the building torn down and knocked off. And then we had a, a house lifting company. And this is all these guys do. They lift and move houses. They brought their 40-foot steel I-beams in and ran them through our block wall and our foundation and had this hydraulic manifold that lifted at 40 inches up in the air. And then the excavator came and knocked out all the old foundation wall and the slab footers, and then we just had it suspended there for a month while the concrete crew came in and built an ICF wall under it. And let me tell you, Bill, this new construction, I think you generally build a foundation exactly square. This had to be built to match the house above it. So there's a few places, nothing too crazy, but I had to plumb bob every single corner of this house, and I don't think I've ever sweat more than I did when making sure those marks were lined up. Crazy. And is that the style of construction representative of a lot there in Anchorage? No, and that's a problem we had. And quite a few folks we talked to when we're asking about for builders to recommend, they said, oh gosh, if you were doing this in Fairbanks, you'd have an easier time. And Fairbanks, for reference, is an eight-hour drive north of us. It gets much colder there in the wintertime. Cold Climate Housing Research Center is there, as, as I mentioned. And there's a level of awareness, I think. It's a much smaller community, but a level of awareness about remote walls with exterior insulation and air and moisture barriers and just the things that make this work. Down here, traditionally, South Central Alaska has access to much cheaper energy. And that's the thing. Fairbanks runs on diesel power and diesel heat and wood and things like that. But down here, it's been the energy penalty hasn't been there for builders. It may be. We'll see what the next few years bring. But it was really a struggle to find a contractor who is really on board or you'd find somebody who was interested, but they'd be two years out on the schedule. So we threaded that needle by taking it on ourselves. And it costs more to not have a community of practice around this stuff. So we're using Proclima membranes, vapor smart air barriers. And it wasn't something that with our detail that the crew who did the roof had done before, the taping. And we got to denail the whole roof deck and really mind the penetrations and any risk for that kind of stuff. And they did, I think, as good a job as anybody without that experience can do. But it really, I think, with more practice and more people familiar with building that way, like you find the efficiencies. But we really struggled with that. And then since July... 16th, basically, it had rained nonstop until it started snowing in October. So we had one of the three wettest years on record. I believe it was in that category, but it's just been a kind of an awful year from a a construction standpoint and nothing fatal about any of it, but it slowed things down. It's trying, yes. Very trying, yeah. Is there an energy usage target you have in mind? Our design heat load for the building is just under 16,000 BTUs, just like a ton and a half. And that's at a 21 below design temperature. 
So we've got not only the ICF wall for the basement with, and we put another R10 of recycled reclaimed XPS on the outside of that, but we're also wrapping the whole, the existing structure with four inches of mineral wool insulation. And then we have a roof assembly that's got an inch and a half of mineral wool right over the decking. And then we've got a new two by 10 rafter overlay on top of that. So that thermally breaks that rafter assembly. And then we're, we filled that with cellulose. What's going to be your heating source? We're doing a combi. It's going to be a heat pump with a Sanco to water heater in a combi setup. So we'll have a, a Minotaur air handler, multifunction air exchanger with its own heat pump. And that puts out, I think like at the low end, 3,700 BTUs of heat in the cold temperatures. And then that'll be backed up by a water coil running off the large, it's an 83-gallon heat pump water heater tank. And then we'll bake some cookies, I think. <laughs> yeah. Cold days in our... <laughs> we'll see. Can you talk about some of the projects at the Cold Climate Research Center? Something that you might be familiar with? Yeah. Before I came to my current job, the Cold Climate Housing Research Center had been involved with our housing authority in developing the Sustainable Northern Communities Program, Sustainable Northern Shelters, which is morphed into the communities thing. And starting in 2009, they built with us a prototype house in the village of Anaktivik Pass. And you can look it up. It called the Flintstone Home because it has this earth berming around it and this brown R60 polyurethane envelope and skin. And that home turned out to use just under 200 gallons of heating fuel in a year compared to what might be eight, 900, 1200, 1400 gallons easily, depending on the construction of a conventional home. So that was a really good experience. And then we've got four more designs that we co-developed with them through other generations in our other villages. And that led to this habit of building homes on portable, adjustable foundations to accommodate future permafrost subsidence or thaw and PBS Nova came up here and did a segment on it last summer, and I think they labeled me a radical or something for putting these homes on sleds. <laughs> I forget the language exactly they used, but they did a fair job. But yeah, that's become something our housing authority and the collaboration with Cold Climate has become known for. But they're doing a lot of other stuff, too. I mean, there's a story in the paper recently about one of their engineers, Robin Gaber-Slot, I believe, and she's working with a mycologist, I believe is the term, a mushroom expert from the University of Alaska. And they've developed a mycelium-based insulation product. It uses the tendrils of part of the mushroom to bind wood fiber together and make an insulation product that can be made here locally, can be abundant, shipped around. So it's really exciting stuff to see. It's still pre-commercial development. but So they've done a lot of work on different heat pump systems, and they've got a cold climate testing chamber where they can reliably keep things 40 below inside and see how different assemblies and pieces of equipment perform. Do you have a cooling load for your home? Oh, gosh, I probably do. But I mean, it's designed to cool the air. It's designed, yeah, exactly. And that's one of the wonderful things about it is we'll have some cooling capacity for the two or three weeks of the year we might need it. We did have a pretty hot summer. I think in 2019, Anchorage for the first time broke 90 degrees Fahrenheit during the summer. So the summers are getting warmer. We were in a drought for May and June and then a deluge in, in July and after that. So it was a whiplash year. But I'd like to think that we've got more resilience built in with the way we're building this place and we'll ride through whatever the weather brings. Is your home electrified? 
Yeah, it is. We got the power restored actually last Thursday. So it's been a long process and there's so many things about this. We, you don't know until you know it, but like furring out the electrical meter base for the insulation and was like, oh yeah, we've got to do that. And we've got to come up with a way that doesn't create too much thermal bridging. And it was a new thing for the electrician too. So it took a couple tries to get it in a way that the building regulators would approve of and the utility just hooked us back up. So we've got power back on. We're not planning to reconnect to the gas. We've got the gas meter sitting in my garage right now. So once we're safely out of the woods and we've kind of proven the performance on this, I'll have them haul it away and cap our line. Are you living there now? Have you moved back? We're not. We've been out of the property six months or so, going on six months right now. And we'll probably be back in there like Christmas at the current rate. Uh, we've got to have the HVAC guys come in here and do the duct work. And the municipality here, duct work is a separate specialty and not every contractor does it. And so they require a journeyman license to come in and install that stuff, which is it's definitely a skill and probably something I don't want to struggle with myself. Smart move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we talked about it some different revelations, surprises, learnings that you've had. Anything you want to focus in as your experience in Alaska is the most profound? Just in Alaska overall? Oh, boy, Bill. I mean, it could be the nature. It could be raising a child in Alaska. It could be yeah, driving roads in a snowmobile. <laughs> There's so many wonderful experiences. I mean, Living on the North Slope, I think we got a lot of head scratching as to why we would move up and start a life there. And I get that. I mean, we had to move south for childcare reasons, ultimately. There's some other things that weighed in that as well, but it was a place to be when we're younger and child-free, or I see people go there later in their careers. It was a magical, just this kind of otherworldly place to live. I went out on the Arctic Ocean with a friend who's got the last dog team in town, and that was just like every other Sunday for a couple of years an activity that I did, and it just made the experience for me, as opposed to and if I had just gone from like work and home, work and home. It was a good third thing to do, a good way to get outdoors. I think what Alaska does, in my experience anyway, is it lets you be who you want to be. And the converse of that is you also have a hard time hiding from who you really are. There's not a lot of distraction here. The state and even Anchorage overall is probably about 15 years behind the lower 48 in some ways. I don't think I had seen a blockbuster video for years until I moved here. And it was like one of the last two or three in the country. But I mean that as a compliment. It'll be, I'll spend the rest of my life returning the favor of what this place has given me. But there's 700,000 people here. Your efforts do make a difference. You can feel the impact of them. I think I'm addicted to the ability to make that difference with the communities I've worked with, the cultures I've had the opportunity to live among and admire and learn from. I just can't think of another place that suits me in that way. I guess it's ruined just about everywhere else for me. Although I do need to get to Hawaii, maybe in February. There you go. Put some balance in that equation. And I'm sure there are similar aspects there too. That's really a beautiful way to end this podcast. So I'd like to leave it at that. Thank you for coming on. And if anyone wants to learn more about either your work or get in touch with you, what's the best way? They could probably find me on LinkedIn as an easy way to do it. I'll put that out there. I've got an easy to find name. That's it. Thank you, Griffin. Really appreciate it. And thank you also for joining the Building Performance Association Board of Directors. You're one of the people I was rooting for because I think you bring some really unique perspectives and Things like this climate emergency that you talked about, being at the 
cutting edge of change, which we all need to stay aware of. So thank you. Well, thank you, Bill. And I'm hoping we have a chance to bring you and maybe some of the BPA folks up here before too long. That would be awesome. Thanks again, Griffin. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for listening to this episode of Building HVAC Science. If you want to reach out and get in touch with me, you can do so at bill at truetechtools.com. I also host the ResTalk podcast where you can learn more about the rapidly changing world of home energy ratings and other peripheral topics. The Building HVAC Science podcast is a production of TrueTech Tools Limited. In full disclosure, I'm a co-owner of TrueTech. And the opinions voiced here in the podcast are those of my guest or myself, depending on who is speaking, of course. Thanks again for listening to Building HVAC Science. We'll be back at you next time with some more interesting topics. Take care.